take a copy of God's word and join me in 1 Peter 5 and verses 1 through 11 is our text of choice. Our topic is in the bulletin. It is entitled An Alert Church. We're going through the different kind of virtues of churches that are healthy. Remember, there are no perfect churches, but among the imperfect, there are healthy ones. And so we want to study and derive what does it mean to be a healthy church. And what I would put before you this morning is that it, you need to be alert, watchful. Um, in, in the Puritan era, they called this the doctrine of vigilance. That's what I want to cover, the doctrine of vigilance out of 1 Peter chapter 5. Now, uh, you could do a study on your own, and I'd commend you to do it, but guarding your life, guarding your doctrine, all through Scripture, you are commanded to, to, to be vigilant, right? To be watchful, to be sober-minded, right? You see those different phrases, but I'll just remind you of a couple um, as I was thinking about in preparation for this, uh, who doesn't remember Proverbs 4, right, 23? Guard your heart, right? You're commanded to guard your heart uh, and, and to do it with all diligence. And that's probably a verse you memorized very early on if you've been a Christian for a number of years. Certainly you have committed that particular verse, guard your heart, for out of it flows the issues of life. And then if we moved into the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 16, 13 says you're to guard your leadership. You're commanded to do that. And then in 2 Corinthians 11, you're to guard your devotion. It was one of Paul's chief concerns that he would drift away from the simplicity and devotion of Jesus Christ. And so he said, I want to guard my devotion to him and, and, and my love for him. And then if we continue on in the New Testament in 1 Timothy 4, you're to guard your doctrine, right? You're to pay attention to your life and to your doctrine. And then you come to our text here 1 Peter 5, where we're challenged, as I'll point out in a second, to guard your life. And there's some reasons for this. So we're to guard our lives. This is the doctrine of vigilance or alertness, if you would uh, like a more modern word than that. Well, let me give you a couple pieces of context, then we'll parachute ourselves right into the middle of 1 Peter 5 here. We're actually the end of 1 Peter 5, but a couple pieces of critical context to Peter, since we haven't been studying it in a while, and maybe you haven't perhaps been studying it in a while, here's some things that are going on. First off, the people that Peter is writing to are experiencing a mountain of persecution, okay? They're, they're in deep suffering. So this isn't casual. This isn't, you know, I stubbed my toe suffering. This is serious persecution. Um, and so it's, it's, it's bringing some doubt to them. Like, can this be sustained? Can we continue on? They're actually being tempted to throw in the towel and to quit. And so Peter's writing to stiffen their resolve, okay? It, that's why if you read First Peter, you'll see a ton of them in chapter five, tons of imperatives. You gotta do this, you gotta do that, you gotta do this constant like, you know, constant resolve being put back into the people of God it's also a reminder as you read First Peter that the Christian life is not safe. Uh, you are not exempt for trials. Trials are commonality. They are what we experience. You will experience. My prediction is we're probably going to need this book a little more in the near future. That's the truth of it. As the culture gets darker and darker, as we're pushing back the darkness, right, and we're being brilliant, well-lit church, we're going to experience some difficulty. And so this book will be mighty handy. This book will come in... Uh, real handy for us in the future. And then he reminds them, look, just glance over at chapter four, verse 12. And he said, hey, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So we're no strangers. Peter's no stranger to trials. But what they're what the issue is at hand is they're, they're, they're getting so much at such an intensity, it's causing them to question. Question God, question trusting the Lord, questioning all these things like, why is this happening to us? So that's the backdrop, okay? That's the circumstances that Peter's writing into. And I want you to feel that you may not be in a trial, you may not be under persecution, but they were and we will be. And so I think it's an appropriate text for us to consider as a group. Second, whenever you have 
these difficult, trying times, it is required of us to be and have strong leaders. So difficult times requires strong leadership. That's the bottom line. So as he wraps up his letter here in 1 Peter, he's going to deal with three groups. First, he's going to talk about the elders, and we're going to go through that briefly. And then he's going to talk about young men in particular, and then he's going to talk about all of us. So suffice it to say, as you approach this passage, nobody's exempt. All of the text is for all of us. You can't exempt yourself. But what Peter does is kind of point out, look, trying times requires strong eldership. That's what he's going to say about the elders. Young men have a propensity for being sloppy in how they live. So he's going to deal with them. And then he's going to say all of us struggle. We're all on the struggle bus. Just what seat you're on the struggle bus. All of us struggle. Let me give you like four primary areas that we all struggle. Is that fair? So these three groups are absolutely uh, critical for us. So let's start where he starts with the elders. Let's read the whole passage and we'll come back and deal with the elders first. So verse 1 of chapter 5 reads, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Here's the challenge to the elders. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you and exercise oversight. How do you do it? Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have each of you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Ah, and when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. Here's the connection. So that's the elder group, remember? Three groups, elders. Second group, likewise, You who are younger, I would probably put that younger, let's put it around 35 and under, okay? That's fair, 35 and under. Let's just say, this is the target audience here. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, here is the phrase, there's a parenthetical, now all of us, third group, everyone in the room, men, women, all of us, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all of your anxieties on him because he himself cares for you. And here's the doctrine of vigilance. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Why? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the whole entire world. And after you've suffered a little while, underline that phrase, a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Well, Peter starts out and says, listen, I'm one of you. Just relatable, helpful, right? He's a fellow elder. He knows how to elder. He's an experienced elder. So he's going to, we're moving into the exhortation section of 1 Peter 5. And so when he comes, he brings a little heat And he's doing it because he's an elder and he's proven an elder and he's qualified to be an elder. Like it's it's the right amount of heat. He's no stranger to suffering. He says, you're a fellow witness of suffering. So he's no stranger to suffering himself personally. So he's not coming from the ivory tower looking down at the people. He's saying, look, I suffer with you and among you, right? And Peter has gained this empathy. You can feel it in the text, this empathy Uh, for the people and a love for the the people who are suffering. And then he says in verse four, it's gonna be totally worth it. Like it's it's hard, it's brutal at times, maybe even savage at times, but it's gonna be so worth it. It's just for the little while, right, Corey? Right, Mike? Just for a little while. 
It's been hard, right, for both these men in our congregation, but it's for a little while. Like, our lives are, he's looking at the totality of our lives. Our lives are temporary, folks. Just for a little while. And so Peter says, listen, what I'm about to share with you is critical for moving forward to be an alert church, but I'm doing it because I care and I love you and I'm in it for, I'm rolling up my sleeves and I'm in it to win it. I'm, I'm with you. I, I've experienced this myself. And then he turns the corner and he points at the elders. Why? Because difficult times require strong leadership. Painful times, tribulation, require strong leadership. And you see the biblical model of eldership on display. There are three primary passages for elders. 1 Timothy 3, which when we have our meetings like this afternoon, we go through attributes of being a good elder. Um, Titus 1, right? And then 1 Peter 5. So this is the third classic passage on eldering. And the totality of that means that we believe in a plurality plurality of elders who will lead, feed, and protect the local church. That's our philosophy of, of polity. That's our philosophy of leadership. The plurality of godly men who would lead, feed, and protect the local church. You see that here. It's demonstrated here. And then what he says is eldering that kind of looks like this, though. See what I'm saying? He says these are the qualified men, and this is how they elder Okay, this is what it looks like on the street. This is what it looks like every Sunday here. And he points out that he wants them to do three things. So these, they need strong men. These are hard times. They need strong men. First, you should be eager to serve as an elder, right? You're not doing it out of compulsion. You're not doing it because you can't find anybody else. That's not it. You should do it because you have a burdening passion to lead, feed, and protect the local church. And that's what he says here. Not under compulsion. Nobody's forcing you to be an elder. Of course not. But you're, you feel it as a calling, right? You feel, it, you feel it in your heart. It can keep you up at night. It can get you up in the morning. It's, it's heavy. It's heavy work, right? And so we're eager to serve. We're servants of Christ. Second, he said we, we don't do it for ourselves, right? Not for sordid gain. None of the elders are in it for money. There's, there's nobody making big dollars here, right? There's, there's just not what we're talking about. They're not doing it because they're being paid. Bob isn't teaching Sunday school because he's being paid. He's doing it because he loves you, right? Bob, are you being paid? Make sure, okay. Whew. That was a little risky. He's giving up his time. He's studying all week to feed you. Mark, whoever's been preaching. In, I mean, these elders are they're eldering out of their generosity, Right? And they're not doing it for, for money. Well, obviously, they had a problem there in the diaspora. There were people in it for the money. And so he's combating that. And third, he says, we do it with gentleness. We're not overbearing, right? There's a lot of talk today about pastor abuse. You can find it pretty regularly. Um, it's, it's kind of a buzz term uh, that we are all combating against, right? Of, of being kind of toxic elders or abusive or over the top or domineering. And we just tell you what to do rather than including you. It's not the heart of these elders here at this church and it's not the heart of any elder. They're gentle. They're not overbearing. And the reason he says all of this about the elders in the first four verses is this. They are experiencing a mounting of pers- mountain of persecution. They need strong leaderships. Leadership, exemplary leadership is critical path. And so that's why he's doing it and that's why he's saying it. And then he deals with the third group, the young men. Why does he go after the young men? Well, I think you know. I think it's pretty obvious. Um, First off, they are Satan's supreme target. The devil's primary target are young leaders, young men. He as many people have quoted over the centuries, give special diligence to their destruction. They are tempted, right, with temporal pleasure. They're tempted to procrastinate their sanctification. We'll get to this later. Young men are tempted to be idle. The idle mind or idle life is the devil's playground. We even use these terms, right? We know this about young people. They're neophytes. They're, they're, they're all running around like puppies, peeing all over the carpet, right? They just go, ah, which is wonderful. It's beautiful. I love it in the church. It's the pipeline. But he says, listen, in a mountain of persecution, you're not going to lead into those guys. They've got some work to do themselves in their character and in their leadership. So be careful, right? Don't just watch out for the young men. Love them, train them, teach them, disciple them. But they are what they are. 
They're still neophytes, and that's why we don't lay hands on young men to be elders too early, right? We don't do that. And so he does these, this second group. And then third, he says in the little parenthetical, all men, all men, all women. Everybody has to submit themselves to 1 Peter. And then he says this, there are four areas we all struggle with. The young men, the elders, all of us, myself, standing behind the sacred desk, all of us struggle with these areas. So there's the outline, write them down. First, all of us struggle with authority. Second, all of us struggle with humility. Third, all of us struggle with anxiety. And fourth, all of us struggle in sobriety. The next verses, five to 11, he walks through those four primary areas that we all struggle with. Remember, we're in the exhortation section. He's wrapping up his letter. And in rapid fire, he's saying, hey, watch out for this. Don't do this. Walk in humility. Cast your anxiety on him. Watch out for the devil. He's trying to destroy your life. See what I'm saying? He's just bouncing. He just, with, in a staccato, pithy fashion, he's firing away these exhortations to apply to our lives. So we're all in this together, right? We're not just, I'm not firing arrows at the elders. I'm not firing arrows at the young men this morning. I'm firing at the ladies, the men, all of us in the midst of difficulty and persecution and trials, these four areas are going to surface in our lives. So he says, let's deal with it, right? Self-awareness. Most people aren't self-aware, I find. Self-awareness, like can, can, can really like understand and break down where I'm at. Let's be a little self-aware, okay? And I'll apply it to my life. You apply it to your life. You can't apply it to Bob's life. And you can't apply it to Mike's life. You gotta apply it to your life. These are four areas that we all, right? We all are on the struggle bus and we all feel in our lives, okay? You ready to get busy? Here we go. First, all men struggle with authority. All men struggle with authority, but particularly the young men do. Look at verse five. Likewise, what is that word there for? He's connecting it to the elders. Likewise, so the elders are in authority. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. There it is. Be subject to the elders. Likewise, in the same way, submit yourself to the other elders. Follow the elders. Submit to their authority. Here's what I've learned over years of eldering. It's easy to submit to the elders as long as you agree with them, right? I think it's fair. I'm the same way. I mean, I, I love them until they get a little cross with me or like, hey, they moved this. Or they did. I'm just saying like we all, it's easy to submit to anybody. Mutual submissions in the Bible, right? That's part of the one another, submit to one another. So this isn't a burden, right? This is a command of scripture. We're all submitting to one another. But then you say, hold on, there's this group of guys that I got to submit to. And he says always, right? The flesh, especially in young men, but true of all men, the flesh fights against submissions. I'm talking about all kinds of submission. Government authority, academic authority, elder authority, parental authority. We all struggle with authority. Just be self-aware. You don't like it? You don't like going to the DMV? How many people look forward to tomorrow, I'm going to the DMV? I'm all in DMV. Is there anybody that works for the DMV? I'm sorry if you are. But they seem to have the same like family. Like the, and it doesn't matter. I've moved five states. They're all the same. Just letting you know out front. So I'm just saying like we all struggle with authority, right? But, but youthfulness in particular feels like they, they feel like, you know, they're always right, right? That's what young people do. I'm raising teenage boys. I've got a 20-year-old and a 14-year-old. Trust me, they think they're brilliant. And I'm thinking... Dumb and dumber, you couldn't get any worse. Like, you don't know what you're talking about, but they have figured out the world. They got the world by the tail, and they got, Dad, you don't have a clue. And I'm like, here's what I do know. The older I get, the more brilliant my parents get. Does that make sense? The longer I'm on this planet, I'm thinking, golly, my dad was like Einstein. Like, he was telling me stuff, but I didn't want to hear it, right, because I was unteachable. I didn't like authority. I didn't like to submit. 
Now, as I get older, I'm 58 years old, I'm going, sheesh. And now guess what I'm doing? I'm telling them the same things my dad told me, like, hey, you know, and I'm re-quoting my dad, which irritated the stew out of me, cost me many licks and many groundings, but now I'm here, I am quoting it. Isn't that something? Guys, we're to make our elders' job easy. That's the bottom line. Peter said, look, when you're, when you're, when you're in the middle of persecution, you don't want to be fussing with the elders, Right? You don't want to have an edge about you. You don't want to challenge every decision. You don't want to play the devil's advocate. That seems to be a popular thing to do these days. You don't want to be headstrong or, as the Old Testament says, stiff-necked, right? You don't want to have the spiritual gift of pugnacity or pugnaciousness. You don't want to be pugnacious. You don't want to be a spiritual brawler. He says, listen, young men, submit to the elders. All men submit to the elders. They are there for your good, not for your harm. Does that mean they're perfect? Oh, no. If I brought Mike up here, if he could actually walk up here, he would confess to you, you know, Bill, love Bill, but he is not a perfect man. Mark, no, no there's guys aren't. They know that. Bill's close. Bob, I, you, just not, you know, but you can still follow them. Again, among, you know, the imperfect, there are healthy examples Hebrews 13 adds some color, right? 13, 17, listen to it. Obey your elders, submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. So they're actually giving an account of what's going on. Let them do this with joy and not with grief. For if you did this, this will be massively unprofitable for you. So you get sideways with the elders, you get sideways with the Lord, it gets real messy really fast. So what I always think of it like this, don't be the guy or the gal who when coming, the elders go, oh, here comes Betty Lou. Yikes. You don't want to be that person. Does, does that mean you can't bring concerns? Does that mean you can't? Absolutely. We're, bring it. Bring heat. We're not afraid of that. That's not. But you don't want to do it always. You don't want to be, you don't want to be typecast as that, right? You want to be under submission Young men in particular, under submission, all men, under submission of the elders. God has established and ordained them to lead, feed, and protect the local church. Let me extend it out again. We're called to submit to more than just the elders. If the kids are in here, we'd have a whole session on submitting to mom and dad. That's a big part of Ephesians 4 and Colossians 4, right? We're to submit. Our parents, the police, you know, when you get pulled over, you got to submit. You hand them your insurance card. You hand them your license or whatever you got to do, right? You just do it. So politics, this is extremely challenging, especially in the days we live in. But Romans 13 is there. You and I just have to confess we struggle with authority. And you will never struggle with authority as long as it agrees with you. It's when it disagrees, then you've got to have a problem. And that's why this passage is here. Like you've got to come in and go, oof, submit to authority. He doesn't even give you qualifiers. What kind of, he doesn't say how much. He just says you've got to be all in, submit. And it's a command. It's not elective. Like you hit a certain age, you don't have to submit. Or you have a great beard, like my brother. You don't have to submit anymore, right? No, that's not the case. Okay, so all of us, Struggle with submission, struggle with authority. This was the first area that he points out. We all struggle with authority. Second, all men, but especially young men, struggle with humility. All men, but especially young men, struggle with humility. Honestly, you'll never be able to submit to authority, right, until you have pronounced humility, that's the, that's the root cause, right? That's the genesis of our unwillingness to submit is because we're full of ourselves, right? Pride is the oldest sin in the world. Pride literally stalks hell with millions of inhabitants. And so gospel people, as the text says, are clothed with humility towards one another, towards one another. Not just God, but towards one another. So clothe yourselves. It's volitional. It's voluntary, pronounced humility. You put it on. 
We said this before. I don't care what garments you wear to church, but you better put on the humility. When you come on this campus, when you drive up that driveway, every chick up that driveway, every you know, speed bump on the way here should say humility, humility, humility. Because you want to receive the word of God. How? In humility. James 1. You, it's just so significant, right? We clothe ourselves with humility. Clothe. This word to clothe yourself with humility, it means to tie oneself up. It was the exact word that was used of Jesus on Thursday night. He was killed on Friday. Remember he had a dinner Thursday night and they came in for dinner and he, what did he do? He clothed himself. He put on an apron of humility. He put on a servant. They, Peter went, what are you doing? You're the rabbi, you're teacher. Teachers don't do that. We have people for that, right? We have these group of people over here do that. You don't do that. We, and Jesus said, no. And Peter said, you know, he said, Peter, if, if you don't let me wash your feet, then you're, no part of, you're not part of my people. And what did Peter say? Oh, yeah, go ahead and wash me head to toe. Like, I get it now, right? That's exactly the humility we're referencing here. It's a word to describe a servant tying on their apron. It's a one-size-fits-all garment for all of us. And Jesus reminds us of our need for pronounced humility. I love it because in that evening, He gave Christianity a symbol. Most of the time when we think of Christianity, we think of a cross. But when it comes to leadership, he gave us a symbol. The Greek symbol was a pen. They would write themselves clear. The Romans was a sword. And then Jesus that night did it for a reason. And he gave us a towel and basin. We're the towel and basin people. We serve one another. We're servants of Jesus Christ. We walk in humility. That's our symbolism. Not the power of a sword or the power of the pen, but really the power of humility. You see, the way up to leadership is what? Actually down. It's quite opposite. This is why John the Baptist, when he shows up on scene and he's, you know, a big deal, he shows up on scene. What does he say? I must decrease. He's got to increase. It's about us decreasing. The discipline and the art of learning how to decrease You will never outgrow your need for voluntary humility, learning to to decrease. God's leaders are humble leaders. The Talon Basin is our symbol, right? Why? Why is humility such a big deal? He tells you in the text, look at it. Look at the first part. Clothe yourselves, all of us, with humility towards one another. Why? For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's reason number one. Do you realize that when you get prideful and when I get prideful, you immediately are in direct opposition to the Lord. God is standing in your way. The elders aren't standing in your way. God is actively against you when you got a good pride going. He's actively against you. He actively opposes you. Because why? Pride is my attempt at deity. My attempt at being God. Just like it was the original sin, it's my thing. It's saying, I know what is right and good and best for everyone. And as soon as that enters in, God enters out. And it's a huge problem. And so you hit a solid wall, and that wall is spelled God. G-O-D. Young men have to swallow their pride. Older men have to swallow their pride. Young ladies have to swallow their pride. Older ladies have to swallow their pride. We all have to swallow our pride. Humility is the soil where grace grows. And without it, it's really bad. And so he says, listen, we all struggle. We all struggle with authority and we also all struggle with humility. And there's a reason why you ought to be humble. And that is because God will actively resist you. That's also complemented by James 4, 6, right? That, 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 that you, you, God will resist you steadfast in the faith. Second reason why you ought to be humble is on the positive side. Because God's able to promote you. Look at verse 6. Humble yourself. So he says it twice for a reason, right? There's repetition for learning. 
Humble yourselves, you yourselves, voluntary, pronounced humility. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Wow. He's going to pull an Old Testament trick on us. The mighty hand of God. It's interesting. Mighty hand of God is an Old Testament reference, and it references two things. It's two sides of the same coin. Side number one is God's discipline. You'll read it in the Old Testament. You can pick it up in a little bit of Hebrews 12, the hand of discipline. The hand of God is used as a metaphor for discipline. He knows how to get your attention, right? Just like your parents would have or, you know, whatever. People know how to get your attention through discipline. The other side of that coin is deliverance. Hope. It's a reference to his deliverance. So the same hand that brings you pain can also bring you promotion. He exalts you at the perfect time and in the perfect way. He knows everything you need. He knows your health needs. He knows your financial needs. He knows every need you have, and he will promote you. That's why we don't self-promote. We put ourselves under the cross. We submit ourselves. We walk in humility. And at the perfect time, he says, at the proper time, he will exalt you. He'll actually raise you up in front of people's eyes. He'll allow you to sit before kings. He'll allow you to speak truth that you didn't even know was in there. So we submit to his timing, his providence, his wisdom, his plan. And he's not going to give you more than you can handle 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13. And so when the fiery ordeal comes, it comes first through the hand of God. The same hand that brings about pain and persecution can also bring about promotion. So this is why you ought to voluntarily pursue humility. If you're struggling, which I would say probably, let's just be honest, all of us, right? I think we all struggle with pride if we're we're self-aware. It's just different levels and different degrees. But if you're, you've got to know that when you do that, you're, you're actively getting stifled and suppressed by God himself. And you want to be promoted. Like you want God to raise you up. You want God to use you. You want God to bless you. So why would you put yourself in that adversarial position when you should be in a position of blessing? And in his perfect time, I don't know when that is. When his perfect time is there, he'll take care of you. He's, he's that awesome. That's what Peter's saying. Like we're being persecuted now, but there's coming a day just for a little while, he said, just for a little while. Coming a day where... It won't be this painful at the proper time. Number three, third area we all struggle with, young men in particular, but all of us struggle with, is anxiety. Anxiety. Look what he says. Verse seven, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. I hope you have that highlighted. Okay, so... Here we go on anxiety. Philippians 4, 6. Anybody know what that says? Be anxious for nothing. Yeah, it's kind of harsh, kind of hard. It's like one of those verses in the Bible where you're like, I wish Paul probably wouldn't have put that there. Be anxious for nothing, right? And we know that worry and anxiety is a form of pride, right? Because you're trying to take over things that you want to control and you want to handle and you think you can handle them, but you can't. So it is a form of pride, I think it's natural to worry when you're in the midst of their context. Remember the backdrop, fiery ordeal, heavy persecution, suppression, government suppression. I mean, it's a mess. It's a hot mess there in the first century. I think it's natural to worry. I think it's supernatural to have peace in the midst of trials. And I've seen it. I've seen people, I've stood by hospital beds in the ministry for years, and, I, and they are going through it, and they smile, they quote scripture, they sing songs, not just as a crutch, but because they genuinely have joy, because your joy is not tied to your circumstances. Your happiness is, you get a new Ford F-150, you're like, boom, I'm parking up front. That's happiness. Joy you wreck your Ford F-150 on the 238 heading to Grants Pass to get a Taco Bell, but you still smile and say, well, that was the Lord's truck. I'll get a new one, right? That's the kind of context, right? Remember, they're faltering. 
These are difficult days. They have every reason to be anxious, right? They're starting to panic. They're starting, you can hear the quivering in their voice, the buckling of the knees. It's intense, folks. And I think internally, they're probably asking Peter the question, what about us? Like, this has been sustained suffering. This isn't a week. You know, this isn't a flu, right? This is ongoing. What about us? And so he says, let me tell you, this is how you do it. You cast all your cares on him because ultimately he is the single best person to care for you. Cast means to heave or to throw. It's, it's a volitional. You yourself throw yourself onto the help of Christ. Decisive, energetically. And how much do we throw on him? Just the big stuff? Casting, what does it say? All your anxieties, 100%. The whole thing. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 6, 25, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble. Why do you cast yourself? Why do you heave yourself on the mercies of God and heave yourself and run to Jesus and run to the cross? Why? Because he can actually do something about it. Now, you come to the elders, you come to me after the service, I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to call you this midweek and see how you're doing. I'm going to check up on you. But Jesus is going to heal you. Like, he has the capacity to do something about it. I am limited capacity. He is ultimate capacity, right? That's why he says that. It's, there's no weight too heavy. There's no task too hard. And I love it because he says he's able and willing, casting all your cares on him because he cares. He's willing to. He cares for you, he's a sympathetic high priest. Hebrews 4 talks about this, right? We can't be anxious. You get anxious, right? Be honest. We all get anxious. Work. I mean, there's a, ton, there's a lot in this world to be anxious about. But we're commanded not to. And so we have to learn to keep casting. And that's why it's what we talk about is preaching the gospel ourselves every day. You get up, you put your feet on the floor, and you... Cast your anxiety on the Lord, right? Because sometimes you'll wake up and you're like, that was a beautiful night's rest. My watch tells me how I sleep. It's kind of creepy. And forever it tells me poor. Like you don't sleep well. You know what I'm saying? So you can, get, you can sleep bad. You get up and you have anxiety, right? And I educate, I'm like, I'm not becoming to my sleep. I'm going to put on the right heart attitude. I'm going to have peace that passes all understanding, Right? He gives us peace whose mind is stead on him, right? Isaiah 26.3 says this. We got to kill our anxiety. We all struggle with it. Young men struggle with it. And you especially struggle with it in, in the heat of the battle. That's why people turn to Jesus in trials and in persecution. That's why, folks, here's the kicker. It's good to be persecuted. Easy times is not good for the church. The church never flourishes when it's easy. They always flourish when it's hard. And that's why I said hard times are coming. You're going to find yourself in Peter. The whole thing's going to look like K. Arthur went crazy on your Bible. It's going to be highlighted and marked up, and you're going to pull pages out, stick them on the wall. This is going to be a significant book for us in the near future. All right, finally, finally, all of us, starting with myself, struggle with sobriety, being alert being watchful. So worry is condemned in verse seven and watchfulness is promoted in verse eight. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Why? Because Satan's using the rough terrain of suffering and persecution to dislodge them from the faith, right? And so he uses two imperatives. The first one is be sober. It is the word for discernment. Right? To, to know the true meaning of things. Be, be sober-minded. Don't be sloppy in your thinking or sloppy in your theology. And then he says, be vigilant, be alert. Sloppy in your living is a problem also. So be on full alert. It's a military term. Those of you who served in the military had a watch and you were a sentinel or you were a guard and you stood and you were not 
You were not supposed to fall asleep. You were not supposed to doze off. You were to pay attention. The enemy is coming, right? He says, be alert, be sober. No sloppy thinking, no sloppy living. Be alert, especially in persecution. The enemy is all around us, right? You gotta be on your A game. You gotta be on your A game. Either you kill sin or sin will kill you. That's the bottom line, Peter's saying. And all of us struggle with alertness, right? But why is this so significant? Well, I'm glad you asked. Look at the text. Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. My, my, my. You're being hunted. I could only assume that in Applegate Valley and all the deer I'm almost hitting every time I drive on these roads, that you guys have got some hunters among us. Well, guess what? You're the prey. You're no longer the hunter. You have Ephesians 6. You have Job chapter 1. We looked at it, right? You're being hunted. And young men, why this is particularly pronounced is because they're his prize catch. There's prize kill, right? He says, you have this adversary. You can't be drowsy spiritually. This is no time for drowsiness. Interims are no time for, for drowsiness, right? Your adversary He says, the devil. He actually calls him out by name, your adversary. He's a formidable enemy. He hates you. He has a plan for your life. He would be glad to open doors for you. He would be glad to kick a ladder out from underneath you, Mike. He would love to do that and watch Mike go tumbling, tumbling down. Absolutely would, right? It's not safe. You have an adversary, a real adversary. And then he says he's Diablos, he's the devil, He's a slanderer. And we saw in Job his ability to move weather patterns. I mean, he, he's powerful. He's not God. He's not omnipresent. Don't, don't overestimate him and don't underestimate him. It's like electricity, you know? That's why you don't mess with electricity. You can bring in an electrician because you can fix a light or rewire a light, but if you get a, get a bit by a 220 or a bit by 110, you'll know like, oh, I guess I should have certain equipment and certain things. It's kind of like how you approach the devil himself, right? This is real warfare. You're at war and you're being hunted. And then he says, he's hoss. You notice it? You see that hoss in the text? He's like, he's not a lion, but he's like one. Ah, like a roaring lion, really. Tell me about a lion. Well, in our home, you raise boys. There's two weeks on television you watch. What are they? Shark week? Lion week, right? I've studied lions for years. Palestine was laden with lions. They're no longer in Palestine, but for first century they would be. Look, they're the king of the beast. They're 500 pounds of muscle. They can run in short distances 50 miles per hour. They can see five times better than humans. They eat about 15 pounds of meat a day. They can be heard, their roar could be heard five miles away. They attack with precision. They hunt in packs. When he says has, he's saying, that's what the devil is. That's that's what he he wants your life, you know? And then you put the twist in here, right? The twist is 2 Corinthians 11. He doesn't always come with a roar. Sometimes he comes with a smile, And Paul says he comes as what? An angel of light. Right? You forget that verse, don't you? Remember you memorized that? Bob and I memorized that in survival kit time, right? Well, we knew that one. He comes, he comes as an angel of light. So he's not always gonna roar. He's not coming with red horns. He's not Halloween. That'd be too obvious. He comes in all the subtleties around here. For young teenagers, they this night comes into their life and they say, God, open the door. Maybe, maybe not. Satan would be glad to open the door for you, right? Oh, I I think I should take this job. Maybe, maybe not. See what I'm saying? This is discernment. This is sobriety. This is you stepping back and being alert, right? And not being careless, not being sloppy, right? Right? You're being hunted, every single one of you. Until you take your last breath, you ought to have the picture of running. You are running through the woods. And you've got 
sticks, marks all over your face. Twigs have been slapping you in the face. Your hands are worn because you're in battle. The Christian life is a battleground. It's not a playground. Who told you it was a playground? No, this is what Peter's saying. And they're being dislodged from their faith and going, maybe we throw in the towel. Maybe we go back to Caesar. Maybe Caesar was better. Maybe it was cooler with Caesar in Rome. It's not passivity, though. It's not asking. Look what the text says. Then what do we do about this? He tells you you're being hunted, and then he says this. Resist him firm in the faith. Okay. So he's resistible. He's not God. He is resistible. He's not irresistible. He's resistible. He's formidable, but he's limited. So don't give him an inch in your life. Don't leave the door open. Don't crack the door, right? Know your enemy. Know your weaknesses. But here's what I love. Notice what he doesn't do. He gives no tactics. Like, I'm kind of a tactics guy, you know? I want some tactics. Okay, so you'd think he'd say, resist him by going on a prayer walk. Mm -mm. It's not in there, is it? Um, Resist him by uh, putting some garlic over your door. For some reason, he doesn't like garlic. I saw it in Poltergeist. He doesn't like garlic. Whatever. You watch too many Stephen King movies or something. It's creeped you out. Like, no. How about binding and loosing? That's in the Bible. Well, not necessarily, but maybe binding and loosing. What about some phraseology? In the name of Christ, I compel you. Maybe some crazy behavior. Nope. Look what he says. Resist him, firm in the faith. This is why you study doctrine. This is why you know your Bible. Because when Jesus was at his pinnacle of temptation, do you remember what he said when tempted by Satan himself directly, Diabolos himself in the wilderness? Remember what he said? Three times, what did he say? It is written. It is written. It is written, right? That's, it's the, the scripture. So when you're light on your doctrine and you're sloppy and you're drowsy spiritually and you're not spending time with the Lord, you are susceptible to being caught and killed and crushed. This is, this is what Peter's saying. Look, hey, don't, this is no time to drop our guard. This is time to put the dukes up. You want to go, bro? Let's fight. It's time to rally, right? You resist him in the faith. Why? Because sound doctrine sobers us up. It brings about sobriety. It brings about alertness, right? When you're tempted with this world's pleasures, you go, ah, there's Hebrews 12. The passing pleasures of sin. Oh, sin is very pleasurable, but it's short-lived, right? And you know that, and so you teach yourself that. Foolish choices, naive thinking, ridiculous pride. It's time, you're supposed, you know, my, my wife calls me out all the time. Says, that seems kind of arrogant. I'm like, hey, I'm in charge. Oh, no. It's good to be humble, right? Foolish choices, ridiculous pride, lethargy, sloppy theology, and devotion makes you vulnerable. That's what Peter's trying to help us with. That's what he's trying to help us with. Resist him, firm in your faith. Well, isn't that what James says? What does James 4, 7 say? Submit to God and then resist the devil. There is an ordo salutis there. Submit to God and then resist the devil. This is how we respond. No vinegar, no garlic's gonna do the trick. No cross-stitching, Psalm 119. No, none of that works. Nothing's gonna get you. It's going to be your theology that goes, hey, I see what that's from. I'm discerning. I'm sober. I'm walking in humility. I've set my anxieties on him. I'm submitting to the elders. Bang. Bring it. That's what Peter's saying as he's piling up the exhortations to an end. And then he ends. And he says, Resist him firm in the faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by Christians throughout the whole world. Now, you may not be directly under persecution or directly under any suffering right now, but all over the world there are. I get an email every day from the voice of the martyrs about stories and accounts. You may not experience it 
in Applegate Valley here, but it's happening all over the world. You know, you may not personally, but it is happening and it's coming to you. It, it will eventually arrive at your front door. So this is commonality. Suffering, we're built for it. We've already talked about this, right? And I love this. Look at verse 10. After you suffered just a little while. I mean, they are under, they are in it. I mean, they're on fire when it comes to suffering. And he says, he calls it a little while. I don't know how many times that I've even shared that with my own wife and said, we're suffering just for a little while. You got to constantly preach that to you. We're just in this for a little while. 70, 80 years, that's short compared to all of eternity with Jesus with a new body, right, Corey? We're going to get a new body? We don't, we don't. Mike, you want a new back? Yeah, you're going to have that. It's just a little while. I know it's hard. It's brutal. It's hard, but you can do it through faith, through doctrine, through sound living, through sound faith. I love it because he puts it on himself. He himself has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. He himself, he alone will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever, amen. I'm assuming we've probably read that in one of our doxologies, right, Bob? I mean, this is one of the classics, right? He himself will do this. And as hard as it gets, I bring you hope today that if you know Jesus and you're trusting Jesus, then you can combat lack of appreciation for authority by active submission. And through Jesus, you can be a humble man and a humble woman. And through Jesus, you can have eyes wide open kind of sobriety. And through Jesus, you don't have to be anxious. That's effective leadership. That's effective leading and living in the heat of the battle. Let's pray together this morning. Father, thank you for this morning. Thanks for Peter's exhortation to us this morning. We do want to confess that we um, all struggle and we struggle with authority and humility and anxiety and sobriety. We, We just struggle. And then we're called to guard our hearts and to resist the devil and to have the right perspective that it's just for a little while. Give us grace Um, press this text into our hearts and into our lives today. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.